some. And like I said, these titles, this inscription is a part of the original text. It's not just um, something added by a commentator or as if it was a study Bible. It's in the original in the text. And this one, it says this, simply says, David's faith is sustained by the power of God. And it says a Psalm of David. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that my faith is sustained by the power of God. Do you guys, you ever think about that? People are like, you just got to have faith, you know? And, and there's a whole movement out there that's about, you know, the power of faith in, in a really an unbiblical way where it's like, you just need more faith, you know? And, and, and it's like, God's the one that sustains my faith. The Bible says that God gives us faith and that he grows our faith. And, and when you think about it, he also sustains our faith. And in the time that we're living in today, when so many things are different in our faith, it seems like is being challenged in so many different ways. What we see in here in the promises that David delivers to us is that God's going to sustain our faith. And, and there's some things we do, but we don't have to work up this emotion or try to sustain our faith. I love it when the, um, when the man comes for the Lord to heal his his kid, and he's all, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And what God was doing, what Christ was doing in that, um, and because he said, if you have faith, you know, your, your, your son will be, your servant will be, be healed. And, um, and that's why he said, I have faith, but help, help, I have believed, but help my unbelief. And, and, and the Lord built that guy's faith. And God does that. He sustains our faith. And so think about that in relationship to what we're going through, because um, to study through, and, and because there's keys in here for us in order to allow God to, to sustain our faith, to build our faith. And in this psalm, David, he writes once again about a time of trouble that came from enemies, um, adversaries, um, false witnesses, and he says even violent men. And in light of these things, David speaks of his fears. And usually, usually when we talk about lack of faith, the other word that comes into the equation is fear, right? Fears. And so David speaks as his fears uh, in light of these enemies, adversaries, false witnesses, and violent men, especially in relationship to God sustaining, sustaining faith. And now as we begin, I want us to prepare our hearts and minds by listening to these three passages of scripture that I want to read this morning before we get into the psalm that address this topic of fear, Okay, in relationship, now think about it in relationship to God sustaining our faith or God growing our faith, especially in times of fear. And um, one of my most favorite passages of scripture, you guys, I, I say that a lot, so this one is as well, but Joshua 1 9. And the Lord says, He says, Have I not commanded you? And I, I love that because the Lord isn't saying this is a suggestion, it's a command. It's an instruction from our Heavenly Father. Have I not commanded you? He says to Joshua, as Joshua's preparing to enter into the promised land, and be, he's the new leader of the children of Israel, right? Moses has passed away. Joshua has been raised up. And he says this to him in the face of Joshua's fears. He says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed. He says, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So our faith is sustained by the knowledge that God is with us wherever we go. Just, just the knowledge of it, the, 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 the promise of that that is revealed as we walk in the face of our fears with courage, right? Like the Lord's commanded Joshua to do. And you guys have heard this, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward even in the face of fear. And we're, we're equipped to do that knowing that God is with us. Now what about 1 John Chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Here's another um, passage of Scripture that addresses this topic of fear, really it, 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 the topic of faith, but at the root of, of, of bringing forth these things that we fear. He says this, uh, the Apostle John, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Again, this knowledge that God is with us, that Christ is with us, right? He's abiding in him, and, and he, and then we in God. So we have this uh, relationship of oneness, this abiding together, taking up residence together. He says, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, this is what's afforded to them. And he says, we know, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love 
abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because, he, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And so in other words, one of the ways that our love, our fear, our faith is sustained in the midst of fears, and in this particular context, it's talking about the day of judgment. What do we have to fear in the day of judgment? Nothing if we're in Christ because the love of God is what assures us what sustains our faith in the face of that fear because we look at ourselves and we see that we're deserving of judgment apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the love of God, the grace of God. Last one is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Peter writes, or Paul writes, and he says this. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. And so... You know, when Timothy was uh, taken over as a pastor of the church, he was young, um, and, and Apostle Paul's encouraging him with the gifts that he's been given, the call that was upon his life, what he, as he was called, to make certain stands, right? And we've talked about that uh, this whole year with our own church, standing, right? Standing up for what is true, standing up for what is right, and living our lives boldly as followers of Christ in the midst of what's going on in the world around us. And so the same kind of encouragement can be received by us. And he says, he says, for this reason, again, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And why does he encourage the apostle, encourage Timothy to do this, Paul? He says this, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and of self-discipline. And God has. He's put in his Holy Spirit inside of us. He's given us a new nature right through that relationship with him. And so in a sense, when we're, when we're walking in fear and not in faith, that's the old man. And we have something new to draw from, something new to live in. And so I, I give you these things because... Um, this is at what's this, these things are at the core of what David's writing of in here in, in Psalm 27 when he talks about his faith being sustained by the power of God. And so David's going to write to us about some fears in that. And in regards to the historical context for this psalm, there's really no explanation given uh, about the actual events, and there are differing thoughts by certain Bible scholars and commentators when it comes to maybe the exact situation that David was referring to when he wrote this. But now we know that Jewish tradition, it teaches us that David wrote this psalm when he was an older man. And they, they suggest that it was at a time when David was almost killed by one of Goliath's sons. Remember that when David was a young man, he, he went up against Goliath, right? And he had the stones and the sling and he killed Goliath. Well, Goliath had some sons and, and um, uh, they were not David's friends. And so David was in a battle, and this account is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And it tells us that, that David, while, when he was older in life, that him and his men were in battle. They were battling against the Philistines. And in the middle of the battle, it says David grew tired. He grew weary. And consequently, the Philistine giant named Ibishai Binab saw that David was fatigued, and he goes, oh, I can take, it. I take advantage of this situation. I see that David is weak. And so he came after David and tried to kill him, and we're told that David probably would have been killed if Abishai, one of David's mighty men, had not come to his aid and struck and killed the giant. As a result of this near-death experience on the battlefield, David's men... Feared for their king's life, is what they said, him being the lamp or the light of Israel. And believing that David was then too old to survive any future battles, they swore to David and said, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest the, quent, lest the, lest the, lest the lamp of Israel is quenched. And so, according to Jewish tradition, this is the reason for why David then wrote this psalm. And, um, but the Septuagint which is the ancient Greek version of the Jewish scriptures, says in the title at the beginning of that psalm, now it's not original to the text, but it's more of a commentary on it, but it says that 
that David wrote this psalm, quote-unquote, before he was anointed. And if that's the case, that means that David could have, could have um, written this psalm sometime during his exile. We know that David had written many psalms that we've already studied through that are contextually connected to those historical accounts of when David was in the wilderness and fleeing for his life from King Saul. And I suppose the reason for why David wrote the psalm this psalm could be a result of either one of these events, as we have some history that kind of points to each direction. Um, but there's nothing in this psalm per se in and of itself that suggests that it's one or the other. But what we do know from reading this psalm is that it was in a time of David's life, again, when things were difficult, a time in David's life when things were dangerous and um, when there were wicked men who wanted to kill him. But in spite of the difficult and dangerous situations um, that this psalm describes, I think the thing for us to take note of is that, that David writes first, if you'll look in verse 1, he writes about being unafraid. He was unafraid. Then in verse 3, he, he writes about being confident. And then in verse 14, he writes uh, even about being um, courageous. And, and, David's, and, and David's attributes... Uh, uh, feeling, all, in other words, feeling all of these things in the face of great danger, he attributes it all to God. He says, even in the midst of these fears, I was able to feel uh, no fear, confident and courageous, and it was because of God. God sustained him. And so in light of this psalm, David teaches us that, that when we know the Lord and when we put our trust in him, he helps us to overcome um, the fears that can paralyze our lives, that can, that can um, cause us to not stand for the things that God calls us to stand for, to not live in a way that God has called us to live. And so if you're taking notes this morning, in light of this, we see David deal with three types of fears. And it may even be more appropriate to say that there's really three categories the, of fear that David speaks to. And as I began to think about it and pray over it, I would, I would even propose this, that, that maybe all fear that we face falls into one of these three types of categories. And, and, and I wouldn't say this as an absolute, but when, we, when you think about the fears that we face in our lives and fears that you're dealing with right now, think if this might be true. Do they categorically fit into one of these three things? that we can all identify with. The first is, that David writes of in this psalm, is his fear of our circumstances. You are in a situation, and things are happening, and they can bring forth fears, the circumstances, right? Um, fear of failure. David also writes about fear of failure, our failure, his failure, um, um, and then lastly, what David will write about in this psalm is God sustained his fears, giving him, giving him courage and, and confidence, is that David writes about the fear of the future, fear of the future. So let's read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll begin to go through the psalm. First one, Psalm 27, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And so David makes these statements. He really is kind of answering the question before he, he asks it. I hope you see that there. So in other words, I really have no reason if the Lord is my salvation, if he's my strength, right? And so he's reasoning these things out. But then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Verse 3, though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. In other words, think of the worst thing that might happen to you, the most dangerous situation that you can be in. David's saying, even though this, even though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise up against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek one thing I, I have desired of the Lord that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. 
He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me. And if you'll notice in this section of Scripture, it's like, it's like there's a shift. It's like David makes these statements. He asks these questions. And, 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 and then there's this transition that we might think in a way um, that doesn't really line up with verse 6 about singing praises and, 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 and um, offering sacrifices of joy. So he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry out with my voice, have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. But then David says this in verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. And we might wonder, where did this confidence that David was expressing earlier in this psalm go all of a sudden, right? He says, when my, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and such, have, such as breathe out violence. And then verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of of the living. And so David says in verse 14 and closes out the psalm, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as David closes the psalm with that admonition, with that instruction, Lord, really a word of truth to, to guide us, I pray that we would wait on you today, tomorrow, knowing, God, that um, you have good for us, knowing, God, that um, you sustain us. Every aspect of us, Lord, is in your hands, and that we can trust you because you're a good Father who loves us, Lord, that has called us into a relationship with you, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, Lord, even, even in the midst of our weaknesses, our failure, our sinfulness, our humanness, Lord, you still, you still stand by our side, a faithful friend. And so, Lord, in the world that we're living in today, I even think about what's going on in Israel this last week, Lord, and we pray for the nation of Israel and the peace of Jerusalem, Lord. We pray for your return. We know, Lord, that your word tells us that Israel will be surrounded by our enemies one day, and there will be none who, who, who stands with her. Um, but you, are also told, you also tell us that in that day that our, our redemption is near. And we've seen Israel become a nation, Lord. We've seen you deliver them miraculously throughout the years of them being a country. And now we see, Lord, that um, they're surrounded by their enemies, and it appears that none standing with them. Lord, you even heard um, the Turkey president, the, the president of Turkey today, uh, um, or uh, this last week, call upon Russia to come down and teach Israel a lesson. And Lord, that just lines up so perfectly with what you've told us that's going to happen. And I don't know if this is it, Lord, but it reminds me that you've told us about what's going to happen before you come. And so, Lord, let us take hope. Let our fears be put to rest, Lord, and the fact that you're for us, that you have a plan that you've told us about since the beginning of time. And that, that plan is, is, speaks about to nations and, and to, the, to, the, to, the, to the what's going on in the world around us, but it also speaks to our lives individually and, 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 and personally, God, that you have a plan for us. So help us to trust in you, Lord. Help us to um, be about... Um, your work. Let not our fears hold us back from the things that you've called us to do. God, give us confidence, the same confidence that David speaks of here in this time that we live in today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so go back to the beginning of this psalm. These first six verses is really this first section of Scripture where we talk about this um, three, this first type of fear or this first 
category of fear where for some maybe multiple fears can reside or abide in this one category. And, and David writes about the fears that can, consult, can come as a result of circumstances, uh, circumstances that I think we all can find ourselves in in one way or another. And when David describes the circumstances he was facing here in verse 2, he first said that the wicked had come against him in order to eat his flesh, Right? Some of you might be thinking David was writing about zombies um, in light of stuff that we see going on in, in movies today. And, but, but no, he's using this statement as an illustration to tell us that these wicked men, about these wicked men who had come up against him, that they had come with the intention of completely destroying him. And so David's speaking in um, uh, these extreme ways to describe to us how desperate the situation was. And when, you, when we're in the midst of this place where our circumstances are not favorable, I don't know about you, whether it's true or not, I always imagine the worst case scenario in the unknown. As a matter of fact, I imagine probably a hundred of equally worst case scenarios. And as you guys know, that very, very, it's like only one of those worst case scenarios could ever come to pass, not all of them. And, and usually what happens is, is not even the one that I've imagined would happen, is what happens. And God works it out. You know, um, and he does. And, 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 and David's speaking about this, man, they've come to eat my flesh. They've come to completely destroy me, to wipe me off of the face of the earth, that my name would never even be heard again. And it's obvious from these verses that David, I want to point it out, that, that David was not focusing on the dangers he was facing, even though he was fully aware of his circumstances. And that's a key for us. Because in the midst of the circumstances and the dangers that are going on, what are we focused on? Usually it's the dangers, right? It's the unfavorable things that we find ourselves in, that we find ourselves surrounded by. And, and David's not really focusing on them, but, but, but what he's doing here is obvious from these verses that um, David was looking by faith to God, and, and he was examining his circumstances from heaven's point of view. And again, it's a reminder that, that our perspective is everything. How are we looking at our circumstances? And by doing so, by doing this, by looking at his circumstances from heaven's point of view, David could say with confidence that no matter how bad or how uncertain his circumstances were, he said the Lord was everything that he needed. Do you see that? If we're looking at our circumstances as we look through our relationship with the Lord, who he is and what he's capable of doing, then we're not seeing the worst case scenario. We're seeing the solutions as God sees them, that he's capable of handling what we facing. Uh, he's capable. He has everything that we need. And this is why David began the psalm really with the answer before even asking the question when he said in verse one, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. See, this is how he's looking at things. And if the Lord is our light, then we have no need, it reasons, right? If he's the light, then we have no need to fear darkness, right? Dark times or dark situations. We may say the uncertainty of our circumstances where we just don't know. An interesting thing about this first verse where David says the Lord is his light is that even though God is regularly associated with light, um, throughout Scripture, this verse is the only one that has direct application in the Old Testament to the name of light to God. Yet when we look to the Gospel of John, right, John 1, we see that light in regards to Jesus is used in the same way, saying that Jesus is the light that came into the world to give light to every man. To every man. He's the light that came to give us light. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said this, one of the, the famous seven I am statements there in the book of John, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when we consider this in regards to the fear of what, let's just say this to begin with, the fear of what someone might do to us, or the fear of dark times, or the fear of dark situations, we should see that we have no reason to fear, right? That's what David concludes. If he's the light, then why do I fear the darkness? If he's my light, why do I fear the darkness? 
We have no reason to fear. Why? Because darkness, um, um, wickedness, or, or evil, no matter what, what form it may come in, and no matter what it comes to do, what we know is that darkness cannot penetrate the light. Right? The darkness has no power over the light. In fact, what we're told and what we know is that, that when the light is turned on, what happens to the darkness? It has to flee. It has to flee. It has to flee from the light. And we have no reason to fear darkness in regards to the circumstances we face or the uncertainty and the uncertainty of them if we are in the light. If we're in the light. If we're literally, if we are abiding in Jesus. Not only is God our light, David also says this. Another perspective that he brings forth before he even asks the question, he answers it and he says, he is the strength of our life. Think about that in, this, in regards to the title of, of God sustaining our faith. He's the strength of our life. And I find this so encouraging because when our circumstances are anything but favorable or unpredictable, usually what happens is we look at them through the lens of self and not through the strength of God. And when we do that, we look at our own resources, our own abilities, right? And what we come to the conclusion is, at least me, is that I'm not strong enough to overcome the difficulties that I'm facing. And so and so because of that, um, I have fear. But when we understand that he's the strength, that God's the strength of our life, we have no reason to fear because of our own weaknesses or because of what we lack, correct? And this is so important because when we see our inabilities to fix, to change, to overcome, to understand or to escape the circumstances we face, it can bring, bring out some of the greatest fears that we face. And it's usually one of the reasons for one of the what-if questions that we come to in regards to the fear of the circumstances. What if I can't do that? What if this happens to me? What if, what if I? And it's usually the equation of self that's brought into it and not the strength of our life being God. Yet in Romans chapter 31, the Apostle Paul asks this question. And again, it gives us this right perspective of looking at things from heaven's point of view and, and, and who God is to us and what he does for us. And Paul asks this question. He says simply, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We all say that. But in light of him being the strength of our life, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then in the following verses, Paul goes on to declare, he answers the question. He says, man, there's nothing that can separate us from the love that God has for us. And what does he say? He says, he says not tribulation, not persecution, not distress, not peril. He says, not even the sword. And so we, like David, can have confidence that even if a mighty army to, were to surround us, our God, who is our salvation, who is the strength of our life, and is greater than anything we face, would never leave us. He would never forsake us. Simply put, in our weakness, the Lord shows himself to be strong, right? That's what we're told. And so how would we ever see that he's the strength of our life if we're not faced with our own weakness where God comes in like on the white horse, right? The, 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 the hero of the day to save those who can't save themselves no matter what our circumstances are. He shows himself to be strong on our half. And so, the Lord, so we know the Lord is more than capable and more than willing to deal with and overcome anything that we face. He is our light. He is our strength. But the only way we can share in this confidence that David proclaimed to have, look at the end of verse 3 in these two things, the only way we can, we can claim the same confidence is for us to keep our eyes on God and to actively pursue this relationship that we have been given with him. And this is what David draws our attention to really in verses 4 and 6 as he goes on. It's the relational aspect of it that brings these truths forth in our lives and in our minds when we face these things. And the secret of David's public confidence was rooted in the, in the, rooted in the fact that he took time to fellowship with God. 
David's faith was sustained because he fellowshiped with God. And this is evident by what David declared in verse 4 when he said this. He said that his one desire, what's your one desire? Well, it depends on what time of day it is. Seven o'clock in the morning, it's a cup of coffee, right? I mean, we have many things that we desire, guys, but the one desire, the primary thing, David says, my one desire, he said, was to seek God and to dwell in his presence. to seek God and to dwell in his presence. In other words, David is telling us that his relationship with God was the most important part of his life. And because of this, he knew that God could be trusted. Did you hear that? Because his relationship with God was the most important part of his life, he knew, he knew that God could be trusted. Because of this, he knew that God would protect him. And because of this, he knew that God would provide for his needs. Why? Because he knew God. He knew him. And the imagery found in these verses in the Old Testament that we're reading about in, in verses 4 through 6, I think it's the equivalent of what we read about in John chapter 15, where we're told about the vine and the branches, right? With Jesus. And we're told that, that when we abide in Christ... He being the vine, we being the branches, he says that we will have what? Life. When we abide in him. And we'll produce fruit. And the word abide here means to take up residence with. And the point is that when we're dwelling in the house of God, when we're abiding in Christ, that we will know him. It's that simple. It's not complicated. What will we know is that he's faithful. What we know is that he's trustworthy. What will we know is that he's more than capable of taking care of our needs. It comes through the relationship and only that relationship. Not only will we, we know him, but here's the other thing that will take place if we're abiding in him. Jesus speaks about this, but David also mentions it here. Is, is what we will do is we'll do what he asks us to do. Not only will we know him, but then we will do what he asks us to do. That's the other aspect of abiding. And this is important because trusting in God to take care of the problems we face means that we're also willing to do the things his way, right? And to not take things or matters into our hands and do things that, that, that might seem right to us. Yet when we do this, when we trust in God to provide for us, when we trust in God to protect us um, by being obedient or by, by obediently doing what, whatever he instructs him to do, we will, as David says at the end of verse 14, this will be the fruit, we will behold the beauty of the Lord. Do you get that? Because we've gotten out of the way. And then we've seen God working in ways that we could that, that, that far exceed what we could ever hope for or imagine. We see the beauty of the Lord. Simply put, we will see the glory of the Lord. Literally, what do we see? His character, his nature, his richness, his goodness and favor to us being poured out into our lives and to our circumstances. We're like, wow, look what God did. He was my strength. He was my light. And the bottom line is when David took time to draw near to God, to meditate on the wonders of God's grace and not on the circumstances he was facing, any worry and every fear that he might have had become overcome with was replaced, according to verse 6, with what? Joy and songs of praise for God. In verse 7, David goes on and he says, he says in Psalm um, 27, verse 7, he then goes on and says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. But then David says this, do not hide your face from me. And we might think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God tell David to do this? And then David think that God would hide his face from him. He says, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. The Lord will take care of me. Now in this 
passage of Scripture, in addition to the fears that can come as a result of our circumstances, I think what we see David telling us here is that there are also fears that can come as a result of failure. There are fears that can come as a result of failure. And this is what we're reading about in these verses. This is what David's being confronted about. And in these verses, we see David's confidence in God's ability to protect and God's ability to provide in the face of circumstances did not prevent him from being concerned and even consumed with himself. Okay? And this is because David knew what he was like. In other words, we're in circumstances. Things are going on. We know that God could protect. We know that God could provide. But then we look at ourselves. We look at ourself. We become concerned with self. And David knew what he was like. We know what we're like. David knew he was a sinner. And if God's help in David's time of need was conditional on David's worthiness to receive it, then everything would be lost, right? And that's what David is being confronted with. Understand, it's one thing to be in the sanctuary of God, right? Praising and worshiping him for who he is, and, and for the joy that we've been given, but it's quite another thing to look out and see the enemy approaching in a very real way on the battlefield and to not have our, cons- our confidence wean and, and weaken in the face of the danger. In other words, when, when the rubber meets the road, when we're in the place of need and crying out for God to hear us like David does in verse 7, one of the things that can happen is that we can doubt that God will help us because we see our failures and we realize that it, 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 from a human point of view, we realize that we're undeserving of God's help. And I think this is safe to say that we've all called out to God in our time of need and asked what David is alluding to in these verses when he said, will God also have mercy upon me and answer me? Will God turn away in anger? Will he hide his face from me? Will he leave me and forsake me? In other words, will God help me? Will God help me? But the answer to these questions and others like them that come when we see ourselves for who we really are, the answer is given here in verse 8. When David wrote this, you said, seek my face. You said, seek my face. And the truth is, is we know, we all know that if the measure of God's help, think about this, if the measure of God's help was proportionate or conditional upon our worthiness to to receive it, then we would receive no help from God. Right? We'd receive no help from God. And David knew this. And this is why he asked God to have mercy on him. And answering and answer him and, 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 and God's answer to David was, was simply this. Seek my face. Seek my face. Three words, very simple. In other words, what God was saying to David in this three words was, was David, get your eyes off of your failures and get them fixed on me. Stop looking at yourself. Look at me. Seek my face. And literally what, what God was saying is, is, is um, get your eyes off your failures, get them on me, and see, David, that I'm pleased with you. See that I'm pleased with you. Fortunately for us, God knows exactly what we are like, and yet he is merciful. Fortunately for us, God knows exactly what we're like, and he is merciful, not giving us what we deserve, but also gracious, giving us what we don't deserve. And we're told about this in Psalm 103 in, in, in relationship to God knowing us. In verses 11 through 14, listen, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why? It says, For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. He knows. He's not surprised 
with the things that we see in ourselves as if we're Adam and Eve hiding in the garden in the midst of our shame like God didn't know what Adam and Eve had done when they ate from the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and tried to hide themselves from God, tried to hide their sin, God knew. Adam, where are you? And when we're looking at ourselves, we, we, we feel like we need to hide from the Lord. I know you can. I know you can do this, God. But will you? And God's answer to us is the same. Seek my face. And so this undeserved favor of God is exactly what David was asking for at the end of verse, verse 8 when he says this. He says, your face, Lord, I will seek. In other words, David was saying, I'll stop looking at my failures, which brings fear, right? And I will seek your face, the place of your favor. And I love that statement because many times in the Old Testament, it talks to us about seeking God's face. Seek my face, God says, over and over and over again. And each and every time you see this in Scripture, whether it's in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Chronicles chapter 6, Hosea chapter 5, it refers to always as seeking God's face being the place of God's favor. Therefore, when we find God's face, or more specifically, like it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, it says when God's face shines upon us, we're then, we are there then in the place where, God, where we see that God is pleased with us. When we seek his face, when his face is shining upon us, we see, we understand that God is pleased with us, that he is willing to help us. And on the contrary, anytime it speaks about God's face being turned away, it always refers to the place of, of, of displeasure. God's turned his face away. Displeasure. And sadly, when we see ourselves in light of our failures, we wrongly believe that God is displeased with us. Let me say that again. Somebody needs to hear this. Maybe all of us need to hear it again. When we see ourselves in light of our failures, we wrongly believe that God is displeased with us. God's not displeased with us, with those who are his children. And this is what we need to see ourselves in light of. The thing that comes, the imagery that comes to my mind, I remember playing, playing um, t-ball. And, and I was one of these kids in the outfield that was doing everything except paying attention, right? I'm laying on the ground, picking dandelions, you know. And here comes, you know, nobody gets a hit. Well, someone hit the ball and it comes out. And they're shouting at me, and I, I don't even think I have my mitt on, you know. And, and I don't catch the ball. But I look to my dad. I seek his face. What do you think he's doing? He's smiling. It's okay. He's not displeased with me. He knows me. He knows my failures. He knows my weaknesses. This is our Father. He sees us as His children. He's not displeased. The fact of the matter is, is that, that um, God will discipline us. He'll instruct us in the right way to go when we sin. But there's a big difference between God's discipline and God's punishment. Discipline is the result of love. Punishment is the result of judgment. So even if God is displeased, discipline us, we need to remember that his face of love is still shining upon us. Therefore, even in the midst of our failures, we can rest assured that God who is the perfect father, God who is a good, good father, he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, just like verse 10 says, even if our failures were great enough to cause our earthly parents to forsake us, he will never forsake us. Hebrews chapter 13, verses five through six says this. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, may, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. 
And so fear of circumstance and fear of failure and lastly fear of the future that God helps us to overcome, how God sustains us. In verse 11, David writes, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversary, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. And so whatever the threat was that David faced, whether it was the giant Ibashay Binab or, or Saul and his men who were relentlessly pursuing David, David realized that the, that the one victory was not a guarantee that there would not be future problems that he would face. Right? The one victory was not somehow a guarantee that there would no longer be any problems to face. And I think this is something that all of us know to be true. And we often, um, and, and all too often, when we make it through a hard or difficult situation, what do we do? We like we start preparing, embracing for the next, right? People always say, well, how many bad things have you gone through? Because they usually come in threes. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It's like, who wrote this? I don't, I don't receive that. Threes? No. But we can, we can, we, we're, we, when you go through a hard thing, when you go through a, a difficult circumstance, you can, you can think, man, there's more to come. We prepare, we brace for the next thing. And we do so because we fear what might be coming next. The Scottish preacher, Andrew Bonner, he once said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. And that's this wisdom, and certainly this is wise counsel about being alert for what might be, what might be coming, but it's, it's much different than being fearful of the future and dreading what might come, what might never be. And so, so David, knowing that there would be more troubles in the futures that he would face, he first asks in verse 11 for God to guide him. Teach me, show me, let me know. And we know in the book of James, we're talking about pray, that we we're told to pray for wisdom in the midst of trial. God, open up my understanding. Give me guidance. Teach me. And then in verse 12, he also prayed for victory over those who would rise up uh, to bring lies against him. However, this prayer for future help that David was praying was only part of David's closing request to God because God's protection is only part of what we need in order to to not live in fear of the future or, or with the anxiety of what bad things might be coming next. And this is why David went on to say in verses 13 through 14, he said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed, unless I had believed that in the future I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so he says, wait. And David really what he's saying is he's saying, wait and see. Wait on the Lord. Wait and see. Wait and see what good things he has stored up for those who call upon his name, upon us. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And the fact of the matter is, is all the preparation for the future will do very little for our hearts when we're discouraged. All the preparation that we can muster up on our own for the future, we'll do very little for our hearts when we're discouraged and fearful of the future and believe that the future, what the future holds is only more problems. Shame on us when we do that. If we don't believe that we too will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, we will never leave that place of discouragement. We will never be set free from our fears. In other words, unless we, will, unless we believe and experience God's goodness in our lives. A famous singer and songwriter, Stuart Hamblem, he wrote in uh, one, of, one of his very, very familiar songs, he wrote and said, I know not what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Amen? And so, and so know who holds the future in his hands. And, and knowing that God is a good father, David, David's admonition for us then is to wait on the Lord. Knowing that he's a good God who has a good future for us, David says, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Who will strengthen our heart. And the biblical thought behind waiting on the Lord is, is not this passive sitting around, right, until the Lord does something. Because the strength that God gives us is received as we seek him. 
The strength that God gives us is received as we seek him, as we rely on him instead of relying on our own strengths. And so if, if we're weak in our hearts today, if we're lacking courage today, full of fear and, and, and full of anxiety over what might come, it's because we're not waiting on the Lord to do. So, so, so as we consider what the future might hold, May we wait on the Lord like a child, like a child who waits on their parent, actively waiting. May we wait on the Lord like a servant waits on the master. May we wait on the Lord like a traveler waits for the direction of their guide. We're travelers, right? Sojourners. And we got an eternal place that we're waiting for the Lord to come back and guide us to, to take us to. And may we wait on the Lord as we wait on the Lord. May we wait on him like students who are waiting to be taught by their teacher. If the worship team wants to come up, I want to close by reading to you um, uh, an excerpt from my daily devotional, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. It says, it's simply this passage of Scripture, Who giveth us richly all things to enjoy? who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Our Lord is ever giving and does not for a solitary instant withdraw his hand. As long as there is a vessel of grace not yet full to the brim, the oil shall not be stayed. He is a sun ever shining. He is Manna always falling around the camp. He is a rock in the desert ever sending out streams of life from his smitten side. The rain of his grace is always dropping. The river of his boundary is ever flowing. And the wellspring of his love is constantly flowing as the king can never die. So his grace can never fail. Daily we pluck his fruit and daily his branches bend down to our hand with a fresh store of mercy. There are seven feasts in his weeks. And as many as are the days, so many are the banquets in his years. Who has ever returned from his door unblessed? Who has ever risen from his table unsatisfied or from his bosom um, um, unimpardonized? His mercies are new every morning and fresh every evening. Who can know the number of his benefits or recount the list of his bounties? Every sand which drops from the glass of time is but a tardy follower of the myriad of, of mercies. The wings of our hours are covered with the silver of his kindness and with the yellow gold of his affection. The river of time bears from the mountains of eternity the gold sands of his favor. The countless stars are but the standard bearers of a more innumerable host of blessings yet to come. How shall my soul extol him who daily loadeth us with benefits and crowneth us with loving kindness. Oh, that my praise would be as ceaseless as his bounty. O miserable tongue, how can thou be silenced? Wake up, I pray thee, lest I call to thee no more glory but my shame. Awake, psaltery and harp, I myself awake right early. And Lord, may that be true as we see you sustaining our faith, God, that we, like David, would sing songs of praise and have our hearts be filled with joy. Lord, you're greater than our fears. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? We can worship the Lord together.